Some things were intentional. I borrowed from my dad's story for the dad in this book, Mickey, his immigration from Ireland, his, his work in construction. And, and my dad had a bookie for decades. So little things like that I kind of deliberately worked in and had some fun with. And the big family and all the fun and affection that comes with that. I guess some of the things that I didn't really realize at the time, and I'm still kind of realizing in a way that worked its way in was just kind of going back to that impact of shame. I was in the shower and I got stuck on that line and I kept singing that phrase over and over and over again. And then I thought, wait, this is the book I'm made to write. This is what my life is for. Everything I experienced is in this book. And if this is the book I'm made to write, I can't compromise on it. That became my parameters for this book was that you don't compromise on your life's work. You just don't. Welcome to the Friends in Fiction Writer's Block Podcast. Five New York Times bestselling authors, one rock star librarian, and endless stories. Join Mary Kay Andrews, Kristen Harmel, Christy Woodson Harvey, Patty Callahan Henry, Mary Alice Monroe, and Ron Block. As novelists, we are five longtime friends with 85 books between us. I am Ron Block. I am so glad you've joined us for fascinating author interviews, along with insider talk about publishing and writing. If you love books and are curious about the writing world, you are in the right place. Welcome to the Friends in Fiction Writer's Block podcast. Today, we are thrilled to present another episode in our origin stories series. We love digging into where ideas come from and talking about the foundational elements behind an author's work. We're joined today to talk about two exciting recent releases, We Are the Brennans by Tracy Lang and The People We Keep by Allison Larkin. I am Ron Block. And I am Patty Callahan. First up, we are talking with Tracy Lang, author of We Are the Brennans. This is Tracy's debut novel, and Publishers Weekly says that fans of intense family dramas are in for a treat. I say I agree, and it is enchanting and consuming, and it has been chosen as the book of the month club pick. Tracy, welcome. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. We're thrilled. This is such a treat. Totally. Yeah. We are so excited to talk about this book. Ron and I both read it and we have loads of questions about its origins. Congratulations and all of the wonderful things that are happening with it. And thank you for joining us to talk about it. I devoured it. I started (laughs) it on the plane and didn't put it down. And I loved all of the voices in it. And I adore the pub setting. So before we dive into the origin story, can you give our listeners just a quick description of this family story? Sure. So the novel is about a large family from, large by today's standards, I guess, four children from New York, an Irish Catholic family. And they're a pretty tight-knit group, arguably a little too mixed up in each other's business, probably at times. But five years before the book starts, the lone female sibling of the four, Sunday Brennan, leaves home kind of unexpectedly and and without a lot of explanation. So fast forward five years when the book opens, she's she's living in California and L.A., and she has a pretty nasty drunk driving accident. And as a result, her big brother helps 
helps her realize that maybe it would do her some good to come home for a little while. So she heads back to New York, back to the family fold, and as happy as she used to be there, as excited as they are to have her, her homecoming sort of kicks up a, a lot of turmoil. Various questions and resentments start to come up about why she left the way she did. Then there's the fiance she sort of abandoned when she left New York years ago. And he is her brother's business partner and, and he's kind of part of the family. So he's very present. And even though he's married to someone else now, he's uh, very much in the mix. And so that's, there's definitely some tension there. And then basically the longer she's home, uh, the more Sunday realizes that her brothers and her dad are, may not be doing quite as well as she thought they were. And the clincher is when she realizes her brother is in some pretty heavy debt to uh, a bad guy from her past. And in order to kind of protect him and her family, she's going to have to come clean with some stuff. And, and from there, all sorts of secrets start to unravel that have been um, kind of toxic in this family for generations in some cases. So all of those come home to, uh, to roost at that point. <laughs> When I finished, I thought this should be called "We Are the Tangled Brennans," <laughs> like, you know, like, and, and and it's amazing. We talk about it as authors all the time about making sure that characters are intersected a lot of different points, and I can say that your characters intersect at a lot of different points. A it's lot. That's what I was hoping. It's yeah. fantastic. <laughs> and this is such a dumb aside, but I love the names that you picked for the characters. Yes, it, oh, they were just so. You. Just refreshing, really cool names that they were. So thank read you. It for that, I, if nothing else. <laughs> yeah, I appreciate that. I put a lot of time into names. They're definitely important to me. So I love to hear that. That's great. That's awesome. So yeah. we also know that it's really hard to know exactly where a story comes from and where it originated. But sometimes there's hints and clues. Could you tell us where the original ping for this idea came from? Well, certainly... On a, I guess, a deep level, it came just from my own experience growing up in a big Irish Catholic family in New York and with lots of family in Ireland. And although none of this is autobiographical, the characters and events are none of it's based on my family, but I come from that world. So I know ultimately that's sort of where the story started on some level. But then it really, it kind of started with the situation. I, I love reading about family and writing about family. The messier, the better. And so um, <laughs> I knew that I wanted to kind of start with someone coming home and back into the family fold after being gone for a while. And, and then all kinds of questions came up about why she left, why she's coming back, what's that going to, how's that going to impact everybody else? And as I dug in further with characters and the story, it, I realized I was kind of wanting to explore the impact of shame really mm -hmm. on a, on a very loving family. These guys would do almost anything for each other, but at the same time, they still feel the need to hide things from each other and, and, and keep secrets. And so I, I kind of wanted to explore that it, kind of a contradiction in a way. So that, I guess that's kind of where it started from. So relatable. Did you always want to write a book or was it, this book that made you want to write a book? Meaning, did this idea come to you and you were like, I have got to write a book about this? Or were you more so, I have been meaning to write a book and I'm looking for an idea? Which 
egg, chicken, chicken, egg. It's the writing. The writing came first. I have okay. always been drawn to writing. I've been a huge reader all my life, but for a long time, it was sort of seen this magical <laughs> world to me that I didn't think I could really do. But so I, I've been writing and I actually kind of have, I've had that first manuscript that I wrote down really quickly and, and learned a lot from, but will probably just remain in a drawer. Uh, mm-hmm. But this was the next idea and uh, that I kind of ran with. So the writing was there first, but once I landed on this idea that it took over and it was, it was a lot of fun, a lot of work, all of that. But yeah. I had a in the drawer first draft that ended up being my fourth novel. So you never know, Tracy. That's right. That's right. I don't rule anything out. <laughs> so like you mentioned, you yourself, come from a huge Irish Catholic family, just like mm-hmm. the Brennans. And some of them, I think you said, even live in Ireland. Yeah. So my immediate family was just uh, my parents and I have one brother. So we're not really that that huge. But okay. my dad, yeah, we're, we're kind of, but my dad was one of 15. And so he had <gasps> seven brothers and seven sisters. And no, they that's all huge. Had, yeah, that's, that's huge. Yeah. Yes, that's huge. Fifteen is huge. <laughs> yeah, that's pretty big. Um, his neighbors in Ireland had twenty-two, so they weren't really. <laughs> so it happens. Um, but then on my mom's side, even she was one of four, and so all of those aunts and uncles had multiple kids, and so there were cousins everywhere. And spent a lot of time in Ireland growing up, so we were just around that and a big part of each other's lives, you know, all the time. Yeah, that's that's how, how I kind of know this world. Yeah. How much of that do you think snuck in purposefully versus subconsciously? Can you look back at the book and say, oh, that snuck its way in there. That way my uncle in Ireland or my trip to Ireland or my, I'm not even going to guess how many cousins you have, but has some of that oh worked God. its way in there I want to know what worked its way consciously and unconsciously. It was definitely a mix. And I'll tell you, we actually did the, the math recently and I, we have 56 first cousins spread out between uh, from New York to Ireland and some other spots. But, but to answer your question, it was definitely a mix. Some things were intentional. I borrowed from my dad's story for the dad in this book, Mickey, his immigration from Ireland is his work in construction and, and my dad had a bookie for decades. So little things like that, I kind of deliberately worked in and had some fun with. And the big family and all the fun and affection that comes with that. I guess some of the things that I didn't really realize at the time, and I'm still kind of realizing in a way that worked its way in, was just kind of going back to that impact of shame on mm-hmm. such a big loving family and you know, how do you get to that point where you still feel a need to hide these things from each other? And I know there were things growing up, as much as I love my family, there were, I knew there were things we didn't really talk about from Mm. their past. Right. And so I know things like that sort of snuck their way in, uh, that idea that, you know, you can support each other as much as possible and be there for each other and have all the loyalty in the world, but there's still sometimes this need to hide flaws and mistakes and um, family history from each other. So yeah, those things kind of snuck their way in, I think. I thought so. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So actually, well, let's talk about your character development. So you have Sunday, Denny, Kale, and Jackie are the four main characters here, but each voice is unique and they carry their own secrets, each one. Did you plan on having that many voices 
or did they uh, crop up as your story developed? It really cropped up as I went because I don't hear it so much anymore, but not that long ago, I remember hearing, oh, watch out, multiple point of view. I don't know. Use as few as possible. You don't want to confuse people. It can get frustrating. So I really felt like I was going out on a limb using so many, but it was also such a great way to, when there were so many secrets going on, it was a great way to let the reader in on some of those secrets when all the other characters didn't know. And so, but it was not planned. I I knew I had kind of Sunday, Dale, Denny and Kale, but then there just seemed these really cool opportunities to bring in some other characters just for a chapter or two to give even more insight to what's going on there. Yeah, they were great, great observers. Did you have a favorite out of all the people that you developed? Um, I don't know if I, I, I will say that probably the most fun was Jackie for some reason, mm-hmm. the younger brother. Yeah. Yep. Um, I would have liked to actually spent more time with him. There were just so many people. I uh, could only do so much, but he just has kind of a neat edge to his voice. That was just kind of fun to write. But there was something I really did love about each of them, really. And I kind of looked forward to spending time with each of them for the most part. Yeah, we concur. We concur. (laughs) So let's take a minute to talk about the origin of your setting. Because we begin in Los Angeles Mm -hmm. and we feel that frenetic pace and Sunday's kind of frenetic life and Sunday is coming undone. But the majority of the book, takes place in New York City. And I want you to talk about that choice. You were born in, you, you're in Bend, Oregon right now, right? Yes. But yeah. you but you grew up in New York. Mm-hmm. So talk to us about the setting and choosing it. And then we're definitely going to talk about the pub. But go ahead. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, I did. I, grew, I was born in the Bronx, but grew up uh, for the most part on the Upper East Side of Manhattan. My parents were superintendents of a building, which is how we could afford to live there. But, and, and that, so I knew that world. I had family from out in Long Island and throughout the boroughs and up into Westchester. And I knew that I wanted it to be in New York because that's, that's the world I knew. And, and, and I wanted a town, I wanted to be close to the city, but small enough that it would have appealed to the Brennan parents when they first were looking for kind of a small town, uh, close-knit community after coming over from Ireland. So um, that's how I landed on the town West Manor, which is is kind of loosely based on Briarcliff Manor, just in terms oh. of location. But I sort of had to, I felt like I had to take a few liberties with the history and I, I so... I went with West Manor, but um, but close to the city, but still kind of a small, small quaint town. So that's how I landed on that location. Uh, and it did seem that when Sunday left the family, what could be so polar opposite of that really would be the other coast and a big sprawling city like L.A., just to kind of contrast where she came from and where she was headed back to. So, so. Talk to me a little bit about the pub, which is one of my favorite parts of the novel. It is set around the the story unfolds and is set in and constantly kind of taps back to this pub yeah. and the trouble it gets in and the things that have happened in the pub. Mm-hmm. And you truly nailed the atmosphere in particular. So I want you to talk to us a little bit about that. Well, I... I love a good Irish pub, and I've had, <laughs> right? 
And I've had family members, particularly in Ireland, that owned a couple or still do. And I know that they're kind of part of the family, even if maybe just one couple or one man or whoever owns the pub. It's everyone's involved and everyone spends time there. And it's sort of a family business, really. And I just love that feeling. It, it just is akin to being part of that big sort of clan, you know, that's bigger than you. And and um, so that's, it just seems so natural that Denny would own this pub and that the family would be really involved in it and and that they would, in fact, spend a whole lot of time there. That's awesome. Um, I have a little follow-up. You have such a huge family that you talked about. Are any of them thinking that they're the people that you were writing about in your book? I don't think so. I, especially <laughs> with the book coming out lately, I've wondered about that. And uh, I did draw on some names from people from my family that uh, just because the name seems so perfect, but it's not because. So I worry that some people are going to like, wait a second. But I think they're all different enough that I, I don't think anyone will get caught up in that, to be honest. Um, but we have yet to see. <laughs> <laughs> so. more, more secrets could come out <laughs> yeah exactly your secret your sequel could be we are the first cousins all 55 of us. yeah that's right that's <laughs> i feel like even just with the the voices in the novel even jackie probably has his own story even you know kale they each could sprout off you gave them so much depth and mm-hmm. background mm-hmm. that i think all of them could have their own story Thank you. Yeah, Yeah, that's one thing I worried about was uh, rushing, just because there were so many. So, you know, I I wanted to give the full picture, but only had so much space. And so I'm glad it it feels like they each had their own little uh, story going on. I love it. Not little. No, not a little. They've got big stories going on. Before we end, I have one last question I really am curious about. And that is back to theme. I know that you talked about the staying power of shame and that Mm -hmm. you saw that theme emerge, but another, and you went into the story with that, which is really interesting because a lot of times themes don't, for me, don't always show their faces till about halfway through. And so that you went in with that is so interesting. But another theme that really emerged for me was the idea of being drawn home again. Mm-hmm. It happens to so many of us yes. and hopefully it'll happen to my kids who are out, you know, doing their thing. I know. Me too. Like be drawn back home. Come on. Yes. You know, come back home. But I wondered if that was originally part of the origin of this story or if that theme of coming home kind of bubbled up while you were writing it. It definitely was not I guess I, I knew that she was going to be coming back home, but it wasn't really a theme in my mind at first. I, and I kind of, they're a bit of a throwback, the Brennans, because nowadays so often, you know, you grow up, you go somewhere, your siblings go somewhere else, your parents may end up some in a different place. And so uh, the fact that they're all sort of back together is, it's unusual, but it, it definitely was not, um, my idea going in that just kind of emerged as I went really. And I can't, I can't say I I knew shame was going to be huge going in, but I knew it would play into it because Mm. frankly, it's just such a big part uh, of the Catholic culture for some people, not everybody's experience, but yeah. 
Yeah, that um, speaks speaks well of your uh, writing prowess to develop it as you go along. When how much more shame can I put in here? No. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> anyway. <laughs> What else can I do to these guys? Yeah. Right, right. <laughs> oh, Tracy, we have so loved having you and hearing about the origins of your debut novel. Uh, the best. Re- readers are going to love this. They're going to pick it up and they're going to they're going to choose it as their book of the month club and, and get it from their bookstores and libraries. And, but I want people to know more about you. So how can they find you online? I do have a website, tracylang.com. That's probably the best place to find out anything else they might be interested in. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. This was so much fun. I love, I appreciate the opportunity to talk about the origins in particular. Yeah. We're so glad that you were with us today. Thank you. Now joining me in the co-host seat is Christy Woodson Harvey. We are joined by Alison Larkin, the author of The People We Keep, which Publishers Weekly says the music and the generosity of strangers provide healing in Larkin's emotionally expansive latest. This hopeful story will move readers. Oh my gosh, what a great review. Well, and so well deserved. Um, yes. Congratulations, Allison, on the publication of your fourth novel. And really notably, being selected for the Book of the Month Club. That is so exciting. So before we dig into the origins of this book, can you give our listeners a, just a little bit of an overview of this story? Sure. Thank you both so much. I'm really excited to talk with you. This story is about 16-year-old April Sawicki, who is a folk singer. She's growing up in a motorless motorhome in a small town called Little River, New York. And she's decided she's had it, and she steals a car and hits the road. <laughs> To start her life, to her yes, amazing, amazing. <laughs> I have and, to say, I think I knew I was going to love this story when, like, right away from the first scene, she's like hot wiring her neighbor's car. <laughs> like, I don't know if that's what you call it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I don't think that's a spoiler or anything. But I was like, no. No. wow, that is really incredible. And I was like, I wonder what the research for that was like because it's not like it's not like you know hot wiring a car that was built in twenty twenty or something. So I thought that was brilliant. I loved it. It is really yeah. awesome. It made me think, hmm, I wonder if Allie has had a history of doing this. I, I think I could if I needed to, if yeah. it was a 90s era car, because I did have to do some really interesting research to figure <laughs> out what was possible. That is really great. We like keep a list of people that we want with us in certain situations. Oh. So now we know that you are someone that we really need if we're in a crisis. Right. Yeah, count me in. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Gotta put this stuff to use. <laughs> Well, we'll draw the line, though, at knocking over liquor stores. <laughs> so, so as you know, Allie, I, I loved, loved, loved this book, and readers are going to really take to it. It's such a, a relatable story on so many levels. But what, let's talk about where the ideas came from. What where the original story come from? I do know that it, you have not, this is not your first time writing about April and Ethan. I have been writing about April and Ethan since 2006. I was working on my first novel, Stay, and I was in a writing group, and we had eight pages due for a writing group, and I was listening to a playlist uh, like on iTunes, and the song Iowa by Dara Williams played, and then This is the Sea by the Water Boys, and This is the Sea talks about like these things you keep, you better throw them away, and 
for some reason, thinking about Dar Williams as a folk singer and what her life must be like. And then this idea of like what you keep and what you leave behind as you move through the world. I, April just, just showed up. It was like this, this thing in my mind that was like, Hey, over here. And I couldn't stop thinking about her. And I finally, it was like, I'm not going to get my pages done. I, I have to pay attention to this. And I think I wrote about 6,000 words of April and Ethan in one night. Like it was just, and it's weird because a lot of it is actually in the second part of the book. And some of the paragraphs are almost exactly there, but they didn't quite make sense to me yet. I had considered it to be a short story, but there was so much missing in the short story. And it's, it's such a strange thing how that happens where where the story is bigger than what you know it is and you have to do the work to dig it out. That's what this book has always felt like, that that this exists somewhere and I had to find it to tell you about it, which I don't know how much I actually believe that, but that's what it felt like. Mm, I totally believe that because I think that happens to me with every story. Like I'll have some weird little spark of an idea and it's just what you're saying. I'm like up at night, like writing this story. When I'm always on deadline for something else, you know, of course, and I'm trying to figure out like, and then I come back to it and I'm like, what is this? Who are these people? What's their story? What are they? And I think, I don't know if you felt this way in writing this story, but I feel like it's like this adventure that I get to like get up every morning and go on this adventure to figure out what this story is and who these people are. And, um, you know, every now and then it doesn't work out, but <laughs> mostly it does. So I'm glad it worked out for you because these are absolutely incredible characters and they probably found you for a reason, I would think. Oh, thank you. But you also have just these really great secondary characters and all these um, quirky and mostly lovable inhabitants in April's world. So what influenced those characters? I think some of them are a little bit of me. Like there's actually a little bit of me in Ethan that I can see pretty clearly sometimes. I think in, in some respects, like April is is a little bit the younger version of me, and Ethan is is a little bit further down the line with a little more perspective and some of the things that he says and he realizes about himself. I you know i I worked in a I worked in a company answering phones in the summers, and some of the women took me under their wing, and I also spent a lot of time waiting tables and working. I was a bartender. I went to college for two years, and then I, I dropped out for a while, and I was working in a an Italian restaurant and then in a biker bar. And so I worked with these kind of colorful people who were adults when I was still very much trying to figure out the world. And I think that Margot came from that quite a bit. I I appreciate from this perspective how much they nurtured me and, and tolerated me when I had this, you know, little kid perspective of the world. And And I'm so thankful for that. So I think this is a little bit of a love story to those people who cared for me when they needed that care. That's the perfect, perfect way to put it because that's how they come across and that's yeah. how we feel about them reading. They're just really, really deep characters and they're just so those even pink minor. high heels. Pink <laughs> <Yeah>. high heels. <laughs> those are going to stay with me. I was like, oh, I was like, what a visual image that is. And it just right off the bat, like you knew who that character was. You know, you just could see her, like she's in this diner. 
and her, you know, stiletto pink high heels and you just knew her. So that's awesome. You did know her. And I love the, um, the scenes where they're putting together outfits and ripping and cutting and tearing and trying to get ready for a night out. It's just really, we know people like that. That's what I'm trying to say is that the book is full of people that we kind of all know. But I want to I want to talk a little bit about place and time. So you set the book in the early to mid '90s, and even later in the '90s. But in a large part, it takes place in central and western New York locations. Which, you know, I love Ithaca. Why this time and place? And what is it that drew you to write about that? Um, I grew up in the New York City suburbs and went to Ithaca College for two years and. I had grown up in a town called Somers, New York, that, you know, didn't really have sidewalks. There wasn't, there was, there was a lot of, you know, if you didn't have a car, you couldn't really get anywhere. It's a very long, skinny town. So some of my friends lived across town and, and I just didn't have that out in the world ability on my own. And when I went to Ithaca, all of a sudden, you know, the first day I was there, I was taking a bus downtown and hiking through a gorge. You know, it was it was this ultimate freedom for me all of a sudden. And and then also I was a theater major in at Ithaca. So going from, you know, being a kid in a town where you live there just because that's what other people chose for you to going to a school that I chose because I'm a creative person and I got to be with other creative people who were making that choice in their lives all of a sudden, like the whole world's opened up to me and I met all these amazing people and I'm still, they're still my family, you know, which is incredible. Mm -hmm. And so there's a, there's a part in the book where April talks about how she thinks Ithaca is where she started. And, um, you get a little emotional saying this, but, but that, that is how I feel about it too. And I really wanted to write that. And it's also just such a beautiful place. <laughs> it really is. It really is. I grew up about a half an hour north of there. So I know like every Christmas going to the commons and, and like <sighs> that's where the original Moosewood restaurant is, is, and there's this, yeah. uh, you describe it so perfectly and it makes you want to go back and visit again. Oh, I well, I hope you get to. So I'm going to oh. have to go. Yeah, okay. I have not. Well, you know, I, we're going I, with you. We'll go with you. Field trip. I mean, I think it's like kind of now we have to go. I mean, it's like we're here. We're talking about it. I'm really interested. I actually was talking to an author the other day who um, had just written her debut novel. And it was set in the 60s and 70s, which would have been the time period when she was sort of like coming of age. I, I do not know how old you are, but I'm assuming you were a very, very small child in the 90s. And so I'm wondering... No, <laughs> no. Did you did you do a lot of research? Like, did you have to go back and and research the '90s, or is a lot of it from your memory? Like, how did that work? That is actually exactly when I was in Ithaca. I went to Ithaca. I mean, April was there a little bit earlier. It's it's a funny little thing. Um, I'm 44, and. April, you look Whoa. very. I know. Yeah. Not that forty-four isn't young, but you look very, very young. <laughs> I did. I am actually. You know, it's funny because this book got categorized as historical fiction by Book of the Month. And, I saw that. Um, I saw yeah. that. And it's hilarious because it's it, it was my college age. Yeah, that's horrifying. Okay, great. So I said it. There was actually a place called Cafe Decadence, which is is the coffee shop where April works in the book, and it was. I just loved it so much. I didn't work there, but I went there and I loved it so much. And I had a Cafe Decadence mug and I didn't wash it in my dorm room, like gross college kid. And it, it, 
I was like, I'll throw it out. I'll get a new one next semester. And the next semester I came back and Cafe Decadence was gone. So I wanted to set it at, at the right time for Cafe Decadence to be there at the time that April was, which is a funny thing. You know, Little River is a made up town, but for some reason... I just needed Cafe Decadence to be what it was when it was. And that actually dictated the entire timeline of the book. Um, but it also <laughs> put April in Ithaca at the same time that I was when Woolworths was still there. Mm-hmm. And and it had a certain feeling to it that I think is still there at the heart. But I think it you know has changed and moved on. I also really wanted to put April at a time before she would have a cell phone because that yeah. made everything different. It does. It changes everything. I completely agree. And sometimes I feel like there are things that we have to throw into books that are contemporary that sort of take you out of the story, but like they aren't texting and they're 18. That's not a real story. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but um, a, a huge message of this book centers on April's search for belonging, both you know in the world and to other people. Can you talk about how you developed that need in her and this really difficult relationship that she has with herself? I think, you know, April's life circumstances aren't aren't mine, but I think her heart is. And I I was I was a weird little kid, you know, I was I was always stuck in my head and I didn't have a purpose for it yet. So I was just daydreamy and strange and and I, I had these moments of very close belonging. I went to this art summer camp and 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 really, belong. I mean, I still talk to the pe- the kids I went to summer camp with on a regular basis because awesome. there's that bonding that you have when when you find people. I mean, that's why why writers can you know show up and just start talking to each other because you have that baseline so of we belong right. together. We're doing the same thing, so and right. that is so magical. And it's mm-hmm. been so magical in my life. So mm-hmm. I really think I'm fascinated in that experience of where you don't belong and where you do belong and. And the fact that I had to figure out a lot of things about myself to feel comfortable belonging with the people who I belonged with. Like I, I was diagnosed with attention deficit disorder when I was 19, which is also one of the reasons I dropped out of college, because it just changed the parameters of my world and I had to figure it out again. But I think that contributed to feeling like I didn't fit in and then and, and not always trusting myself, because sometimes I would not come through for someone the way that I wanted to. And I wouldn't understand what that was and would turn it into being, you know, not a very good person. And so I had to learn how to trust myself and learn how to forgive myself for my failings. And as I did that, I started to accept the belonging that I was finding. But until I could do that, I think I I had a history at points in my life of getting very close to someone and then getting scared that I was going to mess it up. And, um, just kind of looking for the exit. So I I can see all of that in April, obviously, you know, yes, I mean, yes. I didn't do it on purpose. And then it's like, well, that's where it came from. I'm painting from my palette, you know. That's fascinating because I, I just loved the development of April. And every time she would get into a situation and start to get a little comfortable, something would happen and she'd have to move on to the next one. And it really developed her though throughout the book. So you kind of see her growth through it. And I'm just fascinated by that. I think it's so interesting what we learn about ourselves too every time we write. Absolutely. Absolutely. I, I feel like this is this story is me in allegory and I didn't mean to do it. And then I can go back and say, oh, that's why I wrote about that. That's what this means. You know, I can decode it for myself, which is 
really funny. And then I was talking to one of my best friends who I went to Ithaca with the other day and she had read the book and she was asking me questions about it. And she, she pointed out some things that were like, do you think you wrote this because of this that happened to you? And I was like, what? <laughs> yes, I oh, do. Wow. I think so. <laughs> wow. It's still a discovery, which is exciting. That is the coolest when people who know us read our stories and can find those things. That's amazing. I love that. I do too. I do too. The other thing I want to talk about is music. It's an integral part of the novel. And it's something that's April's touch point. It's something that she's always desired. It's it's the one thing that she can almost call home as she goes into different situations. Can you share what music has meant for you and about the process and the importance of it um, in weaving it into the story? Absolutely. One of my favorite books is Song of the Lark by Willa Cather. Actually, it's my favorite book. I read it as a child and I've read it several times since. And she's working out her feelings about being a writer through this story about an opera singer. And so this is a a little bit of a nod to that to some extent, but also music has been a really important part of my life. I was raised on a steady diet of folk music. I was named after a Gordon Lightfoot song. I've been fascinated by guitar since I was very, very young. And I did play guitar a little bit in my 20s. When I worked at the biker bar, I'd play a couple songs at the open mic they held downstairs in the other bar. And and I studied classical voice for 10 years. And part of that was in Ithaca. But I studied it because I wanted to be a theater major and that's kind of what you do is right. you also sing, you know, everybody wants to be a triple threat and I can't dance. So I really had to focus on singing. <laughs> and uh, what, what ended up happening was that I didn't really like, I hated auditioning. I had really bad stage fright and I still would go to these voice lessons and study, you know, foray and, and sing all these classical songs because it was the way that people meditate or do yoga. That was, what voice lessons were for me. I was really close to my voice teacher in Ithaca. I still keep in touch with him. Uh, He sent me a long letter of everything he thinks about this book, which is amazing. (laughs) (laughs) So, uh, you know, I think music has been a through line. It's a way that I connect with other people. It's also a way I connect with the world. And it's been such an amazing part of writing this book, uh, both with the songs that started it and then, I was really stuck with this book for a very long time. And there's a musician named Chris Perica, who I think is just, she's my favorite. She's the best. And she has a song called Compass Rose. And those are the words that are at the beginning of the book are, uh, I know someday, someday I'll offer up the song I was made to play. And I had, I was getting this feedback about changing April and changing the book. And I just had that song stuck in my head. And I remember singing it over and over I was in the shower and I got stuck on that line and I kept singing that phrase over and over and over again and then I thought wait this is the book I'm made to write like this is what my life is for everything I experienced is in this book and if this is the book I'm made to write I can't compromise on it and so that became my parameters for this book was that you don't you don't compromise on your life's work you just don't so Music saved me in that way too. <laughs> um, That's such you're such an inspiration. I think so many people are, are going to relate to it. And now I want to read the book all over again after talking with you about it. It's just I love it. I love. I it. mean, that's a pull quote if I've ever heard one. You don't compromise on your life's work. I think I need like a tattoo of that on my forehead <laughs> yes, or <yeah>. something. 
I'll send you the Chris Perica song. <laughs> I know. Okay. I need to go listen to it. And I remember, yeah. I mean, when I read that, like in the opening of the book, I mean, it really, it's like a, a cold chills kind of line there. I mean, it's, it's amazing. But wow, I love that story. So actually that leads so beautifully into my next question, which is focusing on your origins. Can you tell us a little bit about your journey to becoming a writer? And maybe you, you've sort of hit on this a little bit, but just a little bit about some of your influences. Absolutely. I was one of those kids that just couldn't get enough words in my face. You know, as as a child, I was just always reading. I was reading with a flashlight under the covers and I really couldn't write. I always had these stories in my head and I would try to write them down and I had horrible handwriting and my hand would hurt and I don't think in a linear way. So I would start writing. And when you're a little kid and you're writing an essay, it's like beginning, middle and end. And and I just have eraser marks that went through the page. And so I didn't think that I could write. And I went to an art camp where they made us do theater. And I was a really shy little kid. But I had to do it because everyone else had to do it. And it turns out that I loved it. So over the years, I ended up going to school to be a theater major, which was funny because I was still a pretty quiet kid. But what I realized later is that I was drawn to the character study of all of it, that that's what I loved. And I still use my acting training all the time when I'm creating characters because we did a lot of work that wasn't on the page and, you know, what did you eat for lunch today? Like, what did your character eat for lunch today? What did they wear on their first day of grade school? You know, just trying to figure out the, the depths of a person to figure out their behavior and justify it. So I do that with my writing a lot. But it wasn't until figuring out that I had attention deficit disorder and kind of taking that break from the path that I was on and finally learning how to learn and going back to college that I realized that I have to work to collect my thoughts. Like I, I don't, you know, I wrote part of the end of this book first and that's fine. Um, and I just kind of collect scenes and put them all together and eventually they become a book and then I edit and edit and for years. <laughs> this is just so interesting because that is exactly how I write too. And I, I feel like I'm having all these like light bulb moments about myself because <laughs> I do that also. And it's really difficult as I'm sure you can relate to when you're trying to sell something and you don't want to have to write the whole book, but your mind doesn't work in beginning, middle, and end. And so you're like, mm-hmm. I don't know the beginning. I, I don't even know what this is yet. That is really, really interesting because I don't hear that too, too terribly much, but that's exactly what my process is like too. And, and, the, and I'll end up with all these chunks. And then I'm like you, I edit forever. Like people say, oh, you write so fast. And I do, I write quickly, but I yes, edit forever. So it's like, uh, you know, sort of an opposite kind of thing, I think. But that's really interesting that you do that too. Yeah, I've started using Scrivener. So all my scenes are organized. When I first started writing this book, it was just one giant word file. It was perpetually scrolling through. And so I started using Scrivener and and really leaning into the fact that that's how my mind works. So it's like, okay, I I don't know. This is what happens in the beginning. I don't know what happens next. Uh, but I do know what happens in chapter 34. So I'm just going to write that scene as clearly as I can. And then it gives you clues to the rest of what you have to write. That's exactly what I do. I feel yeah. so seen right now. <laughs> That's awesome. I'm so excited to hear that you yeah, do that I'm, wit- too. I'm witnessing something here. I don't know what it is. But <laughs> That's a fantastic. synergy. 
Um, so ultimately, the people we keep is about families that we choose versus the ones that we are born into. Can you tell us what your hope is for readers to understand about that? I really hope that people realize, you know, I mean, I think a lot of people do, but I, I really wanted to give credit to how important our friends are and how life-changing that is. I think a lot of times, you know, we we don't get the credit of seeing our friends as family. We don't get the respect for that. You know, there's there is no family medical leave when your friend is sick. And I think that sometimes, I mean, in my life, my friendships are are so vitally important and they have been all along. My friends taught me how to be a person, you know, and they supported me while I was. And I just want people who have these these found families to feel validated in that. Well, that comes across so truthfully. I totally can relate. And people, I think people everywhere are going to relate to that theme. And because we do have friendships that we just value. And yeah. so oftentimes it's more of a closeness than with your family of birth because you have more in common with them. And, and like you said, they help you be a better person. They, you like get to learn things from them. It's, they help you grow up. Yeah, yes. I do. That, I, I love the, the concept of that and the idea of these people who are in our lives when we are, you know, becoming who we're going to become. And um, that was a really great theme. And anyway, I'm so thrilled that we got to talk about this beautiful book. Mm-hmm. Um, I cannot wait for everyone to read it. I know Ron and I have been talking about how much we loved it. And it's just going to be a huge, huge success. So we're, um, we're thrilled so. for you. And we appreciate you sharing a little bit of your origin story. So can you tell us where people can find you online and where they can learn more about you. Thank you. I am at AllieLarkinWrites.com. I'm on Twitter as Allie Larkin. My other books have been written as Allie Larkin, and then this one is is Allison. So you'll find me mostly online as, as Allie Larkin. I'm at Allie Larkin Writes on Instagram also. And Ron and Christy, thank you so much. It's just wonderful to get to talk with you. I'm a big fan of the podcast, so it's very cool to be oh, thank here. You. We are thrilled that you were able to join us because it's, yeah. it's rare that a book really touches us so deeply, I think. And I think readers are going to really relate to this and, and, and just eat it up. Thank totally. you. And I will help you steal a car so we can go to Ithaca. Let's thank go. Thank you. Let's go. Yes. <laughs> that, see, this, we knew we were going to like you. We knew it. It just, this is great. I cannot wait for that. <laughs> we'll go we'll see have to a find concert. one from the 90s. So we'll work on yes. that. I'll kind of, I'll be looking around. Oh, <laughs> okay, good. Well, when you see where I grew up, we'll find a car over there. Don't worry. <laughs> okay. The deal. Yes. So thank you, everyone. Thanks for tuning in. We hope that you've enjoyed this episode of Friends in Fiction, Writer's Block. Be sure to tune in each Friday for more fascinating conversations. Please be sure and tell a friend. Thank you for tuning in to Friends in Fiction, Writer's Block podcast. Please be sure to subscribe, rate, and review on your favorite podcast platform. Tune in every Friday for another episode. And you can also join us every week on Facebook or YouTube where you can see our live Friends in Fiction show that airs at 7 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. We are so glad you're here. Produced by Autovita Studios. Connect your voice to the world.